Welcome to the Bridgeway Church Sunday Morning Service Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Dr. Peter Young. Happy New Year, everybody. I'm over some laryngitis. I couldn't talk most of the week, but I'm talking today and I got my throat coat, so here we are. I want to serve notice that um, I feel like the Lord, uh, you don't need to raise your hand for this, but any of you that are struggling with either sin habits or strongholds that you feel like are still preventing you from coming in to the fullness of what God has, I just, I feel like the Lord is going to deal with that today. While I'm preaching the second part of the message, there's going to be an anointing to break those strongholds. Could be issues in your marriage, it could be issues in who knows what it is, but there's, I just felt like the Lord, I, the phrase that comes to mind is, um, there's a story in Second Kings uh, where the prophet comes to Elisha, and sa- uh, or the king actually, Elisha's the prophet, and says, these are the arrows of the Lord's victory, and they were to shoot them a number of times, strike the ground with them and shoot them, and it talks about Um, the the Lord bringing victory. And I just really feel like that's coming today. So I'm just serving notice. It's happening before we even get there. I do want to talk to you a little bit about the corporate fast. We've agreed on a corporate fast from January 8th to 28th. And I'm going to take about 10 minutes to talk about that. And then I'm going to talk about principles in annihilating. I like that word. Annihilating opposing strongholds. Um, So uh, that's going to be the second part. Here's some reflections on the fast. Um, some general reasons for the fast. Um, let me see here. I wrote some of these down. I want to just make sure I give it to you. Um, I, and by the way, I just want to say this. Um, I recognize that some of you have not fasted before uh, or it's a difficult discipline for you. And so we're giving you a lot of freedom. We fast unto the Lord And uh, we're doing it in response, uh, obedience to what the Lord spoke to us to say, I want you to begin the year with seeking my face to get my instructions before you build in 24. And so that's the primary purpose of what we're about. It's our general reason. We felt like God gave us a specific call as a church. And then concurrently, there are a variety of churches that are uh, around the state that are participating in a 21-day corporate fast on the same dates. So when I heard about that, I, I, I picked the dates that the corporate fast is happening so that we'll be partnering with those other churches. So those are the reasons um, that we're doing this particular one. I want to give you some general purposes in a corporate fast. First of all, it unites the body of Christ in a specific prayer focus. And there's something powerful when the body of Christ unites when there's no division in the ranks, when we're a single mind, single focus, you see it throughout scripture where, you know, they were one heart, one mind, seeking the Lord's face in Acts 2, and boom, the Holy Spirit comes. We have a variety of places when the people of God are in one accord, God moves. And so there's something about that, um, God releasing direction, God speaking corporately. I'm expecting the Lord to speak corporately to us out of this particular fast time as a church and as a region. We'll be sharing on the 28th some things that have come up with that. And so it unites uh, the body and creates a prayer focus. Secondly, it really refocuses us on God. It reminds us of our dependence on him. We're denying ourselves in some areas so that we remember God is in charge, um, God rules. I love the way that the worship today was about the victory and the resurrection of Christ 
It's gonna fit well with the second part of the message. Um, but it refocuses on him and allows the concerns of our heart to be centered in Jesus. It also, God gives grace to the humble. And when we go low in, in a fast, a fast is something where we go low. Um, God releases grace, his operative power in those settings. So when I sincerely say, Lord, I'm just, I'm, I'm denying myself certain things to go low, to center on you, to look at the purposes you have, God is attracted to that place of the low. And that's what we're doing when we fast. And um, there can be specific reasons God's calling you to it. You can certainly add those. I know for our church, it's really to seek the face of Jesus and recatalyze our intimacy with him, uh, catching the little foxes that steal our distraction. So that's our specific purpose. Our, re- our primary purpose, just to reiterate, is to seek the face of Jesus. Jesus, do you have any instructions for me in 24? And then to deal with the distractions of your heart or your life, your behaviors, whatever that is, that keep the Holy Spirit from thriving inside of you. The leadership of the Lord, um, connection with him, intimacy, whatever those distractions are, that's the thing that we're fasting and that's what we're asking the Lord to deal with. Secondarily, um, it's a banner year for Um, God has spoken that it's a restart year, that it's a banner year, that there's a rebuilding year. And so before you build, you need the strategies of heaven. So the other reason for the fast is don't just go charging off with new vision and begin again, so so to speak, but to actually seek the Lord's direction. There was a promise that was submitted. I couldn't get to all the words that were submitted, which was, do not grow weary in doing good for in due time. God will release the harvest, the things that you're looking for. So um, uh, with that, you may certainly want to bring some things before the Lord about your own banner year experience, things you're expecting. Um, We had an artist painting of Psalm 24. By the way, we read the wrong word for that painting. Somehow the word came through on text and then the artist said, no, it was actually, I was painting Psalm 24. And if you remember, that was one of the scriptures that the Lord had led me to speak on last week. And so the idea there is that we're going to ascend the hill of the Lord and his glory is gonna come in. And so um, you may wanna do that. Now, let me give you some thoughts. I've got a handout that I prepared for myself on how you might fast. Um, Oh, I should have listed these. There's the primary and secondary agendas. Um, First thing you wanna do is decide how you will fast. Um, There's a variety of ways to do it. It could be a partial food fast. I know I've heard some people say, I'm gonna do a Daniel fast. Some are are fasting certain specific pleasures of food. Um, Some might do a flesh fast, things of your soul um, that you feel are distracting you from the Lord. Um, if you're going to do a complete food fast, I would encourage you to do it short and not full 21 days unless the Lord specifically says to do that. Um, you know, I know of some that are going to do, um, I think there was a video sent out like a three-day water fast to start. That's fine. Just be aware of what it takes in your body to do that and make sure you're preparing. Important qualifiers on this, if you are pregnant, not a good idea to be fasting food. Um, If you have physical limitations of different kinds, you get migraines, different things happen. There's lots of ways to participate. And um, I just wanna encourage you, you have freedom. This is not a legalistic thing we're doing. 
Just seek the Lord, ask him how you, he wants you to fast. And so here's how you can participate with us in these 21 days. First of all, ask the Lord, what does he want you to do? So just to put, take the pressure off, the Lord actually spoke to me. It was not gonna be a food fast in my case. There's certain distractions the Lord's having me fast from. Um, you, do, you do need to carve out time with the Lord. Again, that's the purpose is to connect with him. So uh, part of it is you're gonna add a discipline if you don't have it already of, of generous time with the Lord. Um, we are gonna have morning Zoom calls. I, I think there was an email that went out. There's a Zoom link there. You can go to our website and you'll find it. Um, the Zoom calls there Monday through Thursdays um, for the next three weeks. Um, I guess initially we did not publish tomorrow, but I'm gonna go ahead and be on the Zoom call tomorrow morning. So if anyone wants to join me at 7.30, you're welcome to. You can be driving to work. You don't need to show yourself, your face, if you're... <laughs> And, you know, and changing or driving to work, you know, you just put it on. And the idea there is we're going to hear the Lord together. And it's just a time of encouragement to see if the Lord's speaking anything. And we'll probably start tomorrow with some things around that. Uh, you might want to write out some goals that you have if you're fasting um, for specific things. And then as you seek to spend time with the Lord, make sure you're worshiping, you're in his word, you're praying, you're soaking. And then the most important is to journal what God's speaking to you. I feel like God's gonna give a number of us direction. Uh, personally, he's gonna speak about the church, I think, to some of our staff, maybe some of you. And as you get things, you can share it on the Zoom call or you can send a note to info at bridgeway.us. And we're gonna just try to see what God is saying. So uh, any questions around this? I normally don't ask for questions from the front, but I wanna, I'm just gonna release us to fast together. Let me pray for grace. And um, here's the deal. We're in a new covenant reality. If you miss a day, God's not mad. He's got you. He'll give grace to you for what he's calling you to do. And um, so Lord, I ask you for grace from heaven for you to release to us the things that we need during the fast. I pray that you'd speak to our heart about the reset year in the midst of a world shaking, Lord, we need to hear your voice. And so we're asking you in your mercy, Lord, would you graciously speak to us? However, each of us hears, would you reveal the purposes and plans of the Lord? Would you revitalize us internally? Would you stir up our spirit, man? Would you quicken the church and would you speak to us about direction before we charge off? Lord, we're honoring you by surrendering before we build to seek your face. Just like Joshua did in his day, we're gonna inquire of you before we move forward in the next battle. And Lord, we thank you for this. We thank you in the strong name of Jesus, our author and our champion. And Lord, I just speak grace and peace over all of us as we participate as the God leads. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. And by the way, if the Lord leads you not to participate, it's a corporate fast. All of us benefit from what God is doing. Uh, it's when Joshua took the land, all Israel benefited. And so I just, again, I'm, I'm hoping you catch grace, but I also hope you catch the fact that I'm really excited to see what God's gonna do. All right, so um, there you go. So now I'm gonna start the uh, second part of what I wanna say to you today. And I'm entitling it uh, Principles in Defeating Strongholds. And my text is gonna be Joshua 10, 11, and 12. We're in the book of Joshua. 
And I know I took a break over the, the two weeks of Christmas just to um, get us, you know, focused on the Christmas season, give a word for what I felt God was doing in 24. But I want to kind of review, it's something I didn't do. It's been a while since we started Joshua, how Joshua is structured. There's three parts to the book. The first 12 chapters deal with the conquest. And the purpose of Joshua is this. It's actually written not by Joshua per se. He's got some things that he's got in there. But it's written about Israel's victorious conquest, the tribal inheritance, and their call to covenant loyalty for a future generation that is struggling with seeing victory. There are people that have not seen the fullness of God's victory, the fullness of conquest. And so the purpose, the reason the Holy Spirit and God had Joshua written was to remind future generations that our God leads victory. He's in charge. He's the commander of the Lord's army and that there are no losses when we yield to God and he takes the land. So we're starting, we've done the first nine chapters already. We're gonna do 10, 11, and 12 and we're talking about conquest The tribal inheritance, which we'll get to um, in a few weeks, will deal with the fact that we are, as tribes or individually called the conquest, what God has assigned to us. So it's like the greater body of Christ comes into the promised land, but then an individual church or a family has an area to conquest that God says this is theirs. And then the whole book closes with a renewal of the covenant promises and saying, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. So that's the overview and kind of where we are. I'm going to finish up the conquest today. I want to talk also about this issue of conflict in the Bible because I realize um, when you hear me read these texts, it's going to be it's it's going to be like you know wipe them out. It's like whoa, what's going on with this? And I want you to understand there's a metaphorical picture for the body of Christ in a New Testament reality. So here's how the conflict plays out in scripture. In Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we're introduced to the fact that there's a God and Satan that are at odds and in conflict with one another. And man gets caught up in the middle of that because he's yielded his life to Satan through disobeying God. And so we have this primeval, if you will, conflict between God and the devil, by the way, it closes in revelation that God wins. The devil's thrown into a lake of fire and all evil is defeated. But in between the bookends of the scripture, it's gonna play out and God is winning victory and establishing his kingdom on the earth. Mankind lost it in the garden. They will fully inherit it in Revelation 21 and 22. And in the meantime, the kingdom of God advances violently and the violent take it by force. And so what happens is Israel is assigned a special area of conflict. There's a group of people called the Canaanites and it involves Hivites, Hittites, Perizzites, there's a variety of Ites, Amalekites, etc. Um, that are, uh, we, we trace the history back to um, one of Noah's sons that committed sin. And the prophecy was because you have brought into the new order after God had judged sin. By the way, God is a God that judges evil. They were cast from the Garden of Eden because of sin. In Noah's day, there was a judgment of evil. In the book of Genesis, we see God judging Sodom and Gomorrah because of their wickedness. We actually know biblically throughout the entire story that God does not permit evil in his kingdom. 
and that he annihilates and destroys evil. Uh, and so Israel is this mystery picture. It, it offends the mind of the New Testament believer that God actually permits people to be destroyed, but it's a picture of God is erratically taking out evil. And he's establishing a kingdom of earth amongst a royal priesthood, a kingdom nation who will represent him on earth. And Israel plays that out in particular and they're assigned a territory and said, this is your territory. You can't attack anybody else, but this, this location, this is yours. And um, it also prophesies of a future king, which we see foreshadowed in David, the righteous king versus Saul, the human king ultimately in Christ. And when Christ came in, what did he do? He conquested the devil. It's the same thing of the victorious contracts, the tribal inheritances and the, the covenant loyalty. The way Jesus came in, he literally defeated the works of the devil, says that he came to destroy the works of the devil with mighty signs and wonders, the divine intervention of God on earth. We just sang about it, his victory on the cross. And as a result, the people of God have had their sin issues decisively dealt with. But then it's up to us to walk out the sanctification journey of mopping up those residual strongholds in our life that hold us back from fully occupying. The command was, go in and take the land, I'm giving it to you. But you will take it little by little because if you don't learn the principles of conquest, you will not be able to occupy and possess it. How many know that we're being trained to reign with Christ through the victories that we take and showing God that we're serious about taking our inheritance and dealing with the old issues? The old, the old nature's dead. We're saints, not sinners. However, we all know this residual issues, strongholds that need to be taken out and God says, deal with it, get rid of it. So we do that spiritually in the New Testament, fortunately. Our, 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 our struggle, Ephesians 6 says, is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and dark forces in heavenly places. So our battle in the New Testament, Jesus won a decisive victory. And by the way, he did it with his flesh to close up and fulfill all of the Old Testament. And now this side of the cross, we walk in the resurrection victory and the power of Christ. And it says, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter and champion of our faith. That's Hebrews 12. And as long as we're fixed there, uh, excuse me, as long as we're fixed there, um, we walk in victory and we begin to take our inheritance and we're gonna meet the Lord at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The fulfillment of the finality of our covenant with him. Is this making sense? So I'm sharing out here that Jesus is the Israel's king that is bringing that and it's lived out metaphorically in the life of the believer. And there's five themes in this Joshua chapter one to 12 that are played out. And what happens is we see these themes as it opens and we see it as it closes in 10, 11 and 12. So these themes start in chapter one, two and three, uh, actually all the way through chapter five and six. And then we have these four different battles that are or five different battles that are gonna be described. And they're meant to be Summary battles, it actually took years. Uh, scholars believe it took about 38 years for um, all of Joshua to unfold. But the idea, the way it's listed is there are 
battles that illustrate how God wants us to face those battles, we also see the enemy's strategy in the midst of that, and it's meant to encourage us, God wins. And that we're part of that advancement of what God is doing on the earth. So here's how it starts. Divine promise, authority, and commission to conquer and possess. So Joshua, you remember at the beginning in chapter one, I'm just kind of giving us a review because we've taken three, like three weeks off of this, is um, at the beginning, there was this command that was, have I not given you the land? Every place you st- step your foot, I've given you that territory. So now rise, go in, and you rush, dispossess what the enemy is illegally squatting on and take the inheritance I've assigned to you. And so there's this commission, Joshua, you're commissioned to go do this. Be strong and courageous, be centered in my word, but step forward into that promise and marshal the people and take them into the promised land. By the way, did not Jesus leave us a commission and an authority once the kingdom? He says, behold, Jesus inaugurated the kingdom. He's our commander in chief just like we had the commander of the Lord's army show up in Joshua 5. He's already defeated, and he now says, you have a commission, take the kingdom wherever you go, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, minister the heart of the Father, raise the dead, etc., etc. As I have shown you, now go do and likewise. And we're commissioned to that in multiple places in the Gospels, and then at the beginning of Acts. And then we watch the church live out that commission of advancing the gospel in the power of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. So here are those principles. Divine promise, that's us as well. Centered in God's covenant word, courageous and obedient. The key to all of these successes is when they're obedient to God, they win without any losses. When they're not obedient to God, they lost at Ai the first time, and then they made a false compromise with the Gibeonites. And that cost them. Strictly following his now leading, each time the text will say, and the Lord spoke to Joshua and said, go up, for I've given them into your hands. He even gave them the strategy, go behind, like in Ai, go behind them and have a frontal assault. And he gave strategies for the various battles. The same thing in Joshua 11, when you hear it read, is there'll be a battle of come upon them suddenly. And he gave the location where to come and they surprised them, etc. And then we see throughout this God's supernatural power with divine intervention for total victory. It's mentioned all the time that that there was complete victory, everyone was destroyed. Now this is kind of warfare language. We actually know because these cities still had inhabitants in them that not everyone was utterly destroyed. However, the issue there is, and I'm gonna speak metaphorically, in terms of sin issues, you're to utterly wipe them out. And um, all Israel benefits. The close of all these texts and all Israel returned to Gilgal celebrated and rested until the Lord gave another assignment. So the metaphor of this is in the judgment narrative is this. In the Old Testament, God physically judged evil. Noah, time of Noah, he sent a flood to wipe out evil nations. At Babel, he scattered them. In Sodom, Gomorrah, he rained fire and brimstone. Here in this battle, he's destroying the Canaanites. And the, the word is very specific God said to Abraham in Genesis 15, I'm not giving you permission to go in yet because the sin of the Canaanites has not reached full measure. 
the words, I'm not just and justified in annihilating them until their sin has reached the point where judgment has to happen. That happened in the time of, judge, of Joshua some 430 years later. And at that point, God says, I'm just and justifying. By the way, Jesus will come back to judge the living and the dead at some point. Amen. Right now, we're in that in-between time, the day of salvation. And this whole issue of judgment offends us. But God will judge wickedness. Right now, he's saving those that are caught and entrapped in wickedness. Which is really good news. But there is a judgment narrative. And I know as the church, we've often struggled with that. Um, I'm speaking big C church because, you know, this idea of a, of a devil and, and God's judgment, it just sort of offends the mind, but it's, it's something that's there. And in the conquest narrative, the things I want to say about this is, is that it's a metaphor of our own salvation, if you will. We cross through baptism in Christ. That's the Jordan River. And we set up camp in Gilgal, which means where God rolls away the reproach of our sin and of our bondage, i.e. forgiveness of sin. By the way, did you notice they returned after every battle to Gilgal? Because the cross is the basis of our salvation. And when he says, take Jericho, come back to Gilgal. Take I, come back to Gilgal. Cut covenant on Mount, in Mount Gerizim, come back to Gilgal. When the southern tribes of chapter 10, which we're about to read, come against you, um, come back to Gilgal. When that victory is accomplished, when the northern tribe, the coalition of 25 kings, by the way, the battles get bigger. Because God trains us with the smaller battles for the larger battles. And when they conquered all of the land, they came back to Gilgal. By the way, the prophet Samuel, when you get to the time of Judges and First and Second Samuel, judged Israel by going between Bethel, which is the house of God, Jericho, the first victory, and Gilgal. Because he was remembering it begins with the cross. We live from the victory that Christ won, and we dwell in intimacy at the house of Bethel, Amen. which means the house of God. So um, that's the picture that we're here. And so now um, the application is clear. When I got saved, I crossed the Jordan. It's by the basis of, of, of the cross. And Jesus Christ then instructs me in various battles to defeat the issues of sin in my life. First of all, it's all defeated by the cross. Some he commands, Josh Jericho, take it. Don't take any of the plunder. It's harem, which means it's devoted to worship of me. I'm going to destroy evil because your, your life is meant to be a living and holy sacrifice of worship unto the Lord. And then the next one, the next battle, which was emblematic for us was I, which was the fact that they moved in presumption. Oh, that was awesome. Yay, God. And they, they were so excited. They said, oh, we don't need many of us. We'll just go in. We'll take the next battle. And they failed to inquire of the Lord. And in addition, they had stolen some of the devoted things. So the message of that was, if you don't inquire of the God and you have sin issues in your life, you may not get the victory you're looking for. But once they dealt with the sin issue and they inquired of the Lord, the victory came. Then they renewed the covenant. Then we have this issue of the, the command was make no covenant with the sin or the issue, the people of the land. Make peace with those outside. So the Gibeonites heard of that word. 
They were the dwellers in the center of Israel, the very center of the Benjamin Plateau. And they said, we're going to deceive Israel and pretend that we're not a threat to them and we're actually an outsider and ask them to make peace and covenant with us. And Israel failed to inquire of the Lord and made peace with them. And then what happens, and we're about to get to the text, is the southern tribes, let's just call that the devil, the strongholds, realizes, oh, this believer has made a, a false alliance and a false covenant. So we're going to attack because they are strategically weak. But God, God's going to bail out Joshua and he bails out the believer. All right. So let me read some select text. It would take forever if I were to um, read all of it. So I'm going to do my best to just read portions. Um, Oh, I didn't mark it. So let me find it. I'm in the New King James. Stalling for time. Joshua chapter 10. I'll read the first um, 15 verses back there, Doug. And then I'm going to skip to 40 to 43, kind of recap the story. I may make some comments as I go through this. Joshua 10. Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it as he'd done to Jericho and its king. So he had done to Ai and his king and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. They feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities because it was greater than Ai and all its men were mighty. Let me stop there. Adonai Zedek means the God of righteousness, the Lord of righteousness. This is a picture of the Antichrist spirit that mocks and looks like the Christ to rise up against the people of God to try to take them out when they're attaining victory. So what it said here in the text, by the way, Jerusalem is not conquered in this particular battle. It's going to be for the time of David. Why is that? Because David is the prototype of Jesus. And Jesus is the one that ultimately wins the victory and is going to set up his kingdom in Jerusalem at Mount Sion. And so it's it's an impartial conquest at this point. But Melchizedek blessed Abraham and they defeated five kings. There's five kings here, but this is not a Melchizedek. That meant the Lord is my king. This one is a false king at a night, the Lord of righteousness. He's actually the very opposite of that. And he's going to get a coalition of southern kings to try to take out Israel. All right, enough said. Therefore, Adonizek, king of Jerusalem, sent Horam, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon, and saying, come up and help me, that we may attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore, the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered together and went up, and they all their armies encamped before Gideon and made war against it. This is not fun, but this is how this plays out sometimes. When we make advances for the kingdom, often the enemy says, I'm going to attack their family. Those they're in covenant with to try to exploit a weakness. 
If I can't take them out through moral failure or sin like it, I, or through another false covenant, I'll do a frontal assault, but I'm gonna start with their family. Has it, have you, any of you ever experienced that? But God is gonna defend the family. <laughs> Thank goodness. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua the camp at Gilgal saying, do not forsake your servants. Come up quickly, save us and help us for all the kings of the Amorites. That's the, the name for the Southern area who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, now notice he's inquired of the Lord. Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. So there's bookends. This is what we call, if you guys are in the Bible portion, a chiasm. He's going to respond to their request and march up to defend. He's going to do it all at night, and in the middle, he's inquired of the Lord, and the Lord says, go up, and here's your strategy. Do it at night and fall upon them suddenly in the midst of the morning when they're least suspecting, because it's a 5,000, actually a 6,000-foot climb, and it's a, a steep ascent, and it's in the middle of the night, and they aren't going to expect you to show up at dawn. Boom. Strategy from the Lord, that's how this thing starts. And listen to this. So Joshua, oh, we've got, he marched all night, verse 10. So the Lord routed them before Israel, killing them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chasing them along the road that goes down to Beit Haran and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. This is like, there's a ridge there. Uh, Israel's cities are built on hills. And there are key ridges that they actually transverse on. This is a ridge north of Jerusalem, um, just to the, slightly to the, I guess it would be the south of Bethel, where the Gibeonites had a stronghold. And they, they run down this ridge all the way to the, uh, the sea area where Tel Aviv would be in modern day Israel, and then south towards Gaza. And Israel's chasing them down this hill. And it says here, it says here, so Joshua ascended from Gilgal. Oh, excuse me, I'm going too far back chased them along the road that goes to Beit Haran and struck them as far as Zekah and Makeda. And it happened as they fell before Israel and were on the descent of Beit Haran that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Zekah and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel that killed with the sword. Now that's a supernatural storm that God sent hailstones from heaven to judge the enemies of God. It pursues just them all the way down the hill. By the way, the, the storms normally, normally go this way from west to east, but this storm is pursuing them down the, the hill and then to the south, and it's hailing on them the entire time. Right. Large hailstones and taking them out as they go, and Israel just has to mop, or, mop up as God is thundering literally from heaven. <laughs> You see this? The conquering king moves in signs and wonders and he supernaturally backs his children. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, O son, stand still over Gibeon. Gibeon is that area of the, um, the, Gibeon, uh, the, um, the plateau that they were on. Uh, 
and the moon in the valley of Ajalon. This is the south now as they've come down and they're going to the valley of Ajalon, which leads up to Bethlehem and, and Jerusalem. And the moon stopped. Oh, so, so the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven. They did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. There's been no day like it before or after it that the Lord heeded the voice of man for the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned in all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. So, do you notice the supernatural intervention of God? Now, scholars have debated, like, did the sun literally stop? Like, did the earth stop in its rotation? Like, what is this? Uh, there's been all sorts of attempts to justify it. Just like there was in, um, you know, the time of the miracles in, in Egypt. And even the river that damned up when, when the people of God crossed. Here's the point you want to take away. Do not deconstruct the scripture, but recognize however it happened, God moved supernaturally. I actually was in Gezer in Israel. The last time we were there, I, some of you were with us, Paul Elstrom, I, I think you were with us. We stood at Ekron and Gezer and we looked and the 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 sun was going down on this side and the moon was coming up on this side. And I realized, oh Lord, this is that picture. You're going to preserve light long enough for the enemy to be routed because they routed them in a single day and all five kings end up in the cave in Makeda and where they're later sealed in and then destroyed. The point is, God heeded the voice of a man. That's how this closed, this first sort of frame of this text is he heeded the voice of a man and he answered with supernatural power from heaven and God fought the battle. This is the key. We stand still, which means we cease from effort and we let the commander of the Lord's army take out our enemies. You cannot defeat your sin and the alliance of the enemy that comes against you, but God can. And that's why I said I'm serving notice to the strongholds that are coming against you or the demonic attacks that come against your life. God has victory. God will win over whatever weapon the enemy fashions against you and whatever stronghold resists you in the land. So important. Okay, now I'm gonna... Just recap verse 16 to like verse 40. There are five kings, these kings that were listed. They flee. Um, they end up in a cave. Joshua hears that they are in a cave and he says to his men, okay, the Lord's given me another strategy. Go up and roll some stones against those caves. We're going for round two. We're gonna take, we're gonna seal them in. We'll, we'll save it for a day of judgment. And we're gonna deal with all of those sin issues and we're gonna go from town to town and we're gonna win the victory. And so all of the towns are defeated. It lists um, Makeda, Libna, Lachish, Gezer, Eglon, Hebron, and Debir. By the way, Jerusalem's not listed. And they're all defeated and... Um, it, it indicates what ends up happening is 
They're cast into this cave. And then Joshua, it says this, the concluding comments in verse 40. So Joshua conquered all of the land, the mountain country and the south and the lowlands and the wilderness slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly destroyed it. All that breathed as God, the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua conquered them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as even Gibeon. All these kings in their land, Joshua cook at one time because the Lord of God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all of Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Now, what's interesting is it's a decisive victory like D-Day was in Normandy, but there's still a mopping up operation to take in the south. They actually had not conquered. By the way, when God spoke and said, from the land of Goshen, the Nile River, all the way to the Euphrates River, everywhere that you have stepped in your journey, from Babylon, essentially, all the way into this land, I'm giving you all of that, in, into Egypt and back out, I'm giving you all of that territory. Actually, they only took a small slice and there was, more, there was more operations to do, but the idea that the reason it ends in this is God fought for Israel, all Israel returns to the camp where the, of, of the covenant, Gilgal, forgiveness of sin, and the decisive victory's been won, all they need to do is mop it up. Amen. That's the point. Amen. By the way, God's defeated all of your sin issues. Amen. Now you just mop it up. <laughs> yeah, next time I, I hear Carol laughing, you know, when the devil comes against you, get a mop out. <laughs> hey, devil, I'm gonna mop up. <laughs> You want to spill in my living room? I got you. Jesus has got you. Let's read chapter 11 a little bit. Same thing, I'm going to read the first parts and then skip for the sake of time. It came to pass when Jabin, king of Hatzor, this is a town now in the north. It's the strong city in the north. So here's what you have. Jericho and I were the strongholds for the central part. Jerusalem was the leader of the consortium of the south and Hatzor, which is just north of the Sea of Galilee, um, right before what's now called Lake Hula, which has uh, got a different name here in the Old Testament. There's this stronghold that he's able to bring 25 kings of the north together. So just notice the battle starts with two cities, moves to a coalition of five in the south, to a coalition of 25 in the north. Each one is training the people of God to learn to overcome and to possess at deeper levels. Amen. Chapter 11. When Jabin, king of Hatzor, heard these things and went to Joab, the king of Madon, the king of Shimron, to the king of Ashkaf, and to the kings who were from the north in the mountains and the plains of the south of Chinnereth, that Chinnereth is the Old Testament name for the Sea of Galilee. In the lowlands and their heights of door to the west. This would be like Mount Carmel and the, the mountains up towards Lebanon. To the Canaanites in the east. This is the Golan Heights. Uh, to the west, the Amorite, the Hittites, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, the mountains, the Hivite below. Hermon and the land of Mizpah. This is Mount Hermon. They went out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore in multitude with very many horses and chariots. Again, we've got sand of a seashore is a, is a metaphor for an innumerable amount. 
Remember, Abraham was to look at the stars and say, that will be your offspring like the sand of the seashore. So we've got this mobilized army that's gathered at the Lake Meriom, and it's gathered there to fight Israel. But just like the ones that gathered to fight the Gibeonites, God is going to instruct Israel to go up and defeat them and fall upon them suddenly when they're not expecting it and defeat and rout these kings and this vast army. By the way, you realize, like, whoa, whoa, okay. You realize Israel's outnumbered. But God. Oh, I haven't kept up with my notes. Um, here's your picture. They come in from the side. They take the south. Now they're taking the north. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> Here's what it looks like, southern tribe, central one, northern one. And, and they had some already on the east. So just so you kind of see where we're at. Um, let's, uh, hmm, let's continue reading in 11. I'm getting excited about the text. I mean, what a gruesome text to get excited about. But <laughs> here we are. Um, They camped at Merom to fight against Israel, verse six. But the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them for tomorrow about this time. I will deliver all of them slain before Israel and you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. By the way, there's a picture there. Do not use the weapons of the enemy in your fight. Ooh. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came against them suddenly by the waters of Merom and they attacked them and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel who defeated them and chased them into greater Sidon. This is into Lebanon. The brook, the brook of um, Misrafroth, I can't say that one, the valley of Mizpah eastward, that's the Golan Heights area. And they attacked them till none of them were left remaining. So Joshua did to them as the Lord told him and hamstrung their horses and burned the chariots with fire. Same story. God wins the battle. We don't have, we don't have details this time. How did they defeat these guys? Don't know. It just says God did it. And it says that they obeyed the commands of the Lord. There's your key right there. Joshua turned back at that time, took Hatsor with its king with a sword. Uh, for Hatsor was formerly the head of all those kingdoms. By the way, it's destroyed to this day. There's just a hill there. Um, I've not been on the site, but you can see it as the bus goes by on the way to Tel Dan, this giant hill. It was actually 10 times larger than Jericho. It's a very large city, very strong stronghold. On the, 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 way, the way from Egypt to Babylon, a very key strategic city, utterly destroyed. By the way, God needed to utterly destroy three cities, Jericho, the central access, Hatzor in the north, and Jerusalem, but that was reserved for the king. Amen. You get it? It's a prophetic picture. Only in Christ is this battle really done. God leaves the impartial nature of the Old Testament to, as a picture to say, all right, hello, this is how it works, but Jesus. Amen. All right, I've read 15 verses. Now, let's see. So the cities, he utterly destroyed them, verse 12, enough, none breathing as the Lord had commanded, etc. Then let me skip to verse 20 and 23. 
The Lord hardened the hearts of the inhabitants that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them, that they may receive no mercy, but that he may destroy them as the Lord's commanded. And then verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land that the, uh, that the Lord had said to Moses, and Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to the division by tribes. Then the land rested from war. I thought this was interesting that the Lord hardens the hearts that they should come against Israel in battle to be defeated. I'm actually not going to go pick a fight with the enemy, but if he shows up in my living room with a consortium against my family or directly against me, God is going to take him out. And what happens is, believe it or not, in the spiritual warfare battles that we're facing, God's actually hardening the hearts of those that come against us so that the kingdom can advance through us as we trust in the Lord, our commander-in-chief. I'm not going to take down principalities in Denver, but if they show up in this church, we have a fight on our hands and God's going to win. And so chapter 12, just to kind of conclude this, and I'll give you some principles. Um, chapter 12 says this, it lists the kings. And by the way, it's going to list 35 kings. Some on the east, four on the east that were taken, the southern tribes and the northern tribes. And there's a principle in that. When we're facing, remember this book is written to encourage future generations in their time when they're discouraged that they've not completed the battle. Let's remember the past victories God has won. And they recount all of this in chapter 12. And the close of 12 is the land had, oops, I went too far. All of the kings, 31, list 31 here. And there was the, 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 the ones on the east as well. Um, so let me list some principles for you. First thing I want to say is this. As we get, gain ground and become a threat to the devil, he may wage full on frontal assault on either us directly or our covenant family. Actually, I'm encouraged. When we see opposition, it means you're up to something. And I just want to bless you. I, I'm, I'm not going to name it. I'm thinking of someone who's just made a, a huge commitment on a business venture. I just declare 100% victory and that whatever the devil sends against you in preventing that will fall. Some of you are taking steps towards ministry and assignments you know the Lord has, and you're seeing opposition. I just declare the Lord's victorious. It's actually an endorsement. God's got it. Now, we need that perspective and that kind of faith. Otherwise, what did the Lord do in ministry? You're becoming discouraged and weary. I see someone at night, and here's what you're thinking about. I see someone so discouraged, you're considering cutting. I see these issues that are standing up against you and God wants to shoot his arrows of fire of victory on those issues. It's the theme here, Jesus Christ has defeated these issues. So when we gain ground like this, let's not be surprised. With each battle we face, principle number two, inquire of the Lord, but have faith in his victory. Lord, what do you want me to do about this? But whatever he tells you, go do it. But the fact is, he will have victory. Amen. It's part of what we're doing with the fast. The Lord just said, I'm giving a banner year, a year of restore, a year of reset, a completion of promises that were started in the old season. She'll start in this season. Yes. 
But I'm going to inquire of the Lord first so that I can move in obedience, in faith to his command rather than human zeal. I will not presume. So this is the second principle. With each battle, we inquire of the Lord. The third principle is this. God will supernaturally intervene to destroy strongholds of sin or an assaulting attack of the devil and his cohorts against you. If this is not clear, I mean, it was so clear in the text, but God fought for Israel. God fought for Israel. God fought for Israel. I mean, Lord, like in our day, send down things from heaven to take out our enemy. And may there be enough light and truth that remains that you are resting on us with the glory of the Lord until our enemies are defeated. Just kind of metaphorically taking the sun, not setting. Number four, to prevail in larger battles, first be faithful in the smaller ones and learn from past mistakes. David learned to face Goliath when a nation was at stake by fighting the lion and the bear in private. Israel learned from Joshua, from Jericho, excuse me, from Ai, from the Gibeonites, and from the southern victory before they were qualified to take on the northern tribes. So, I just speak grace over you that as you advance in 24, your past victories and what you've learned in the past season will equip you for the current season. God is faithful. Number five, don't use the enemy's tools in spiritual warfare. It says in one of the Corinthians, for our weapons are not carnal. They are different. Let's read it. Let me get it. I don't want to just misquote it. They're mighty for tearing down strongholds. Oops, I'm in the wrong Corinthians. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 10. It says this. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Though there's angry words, I do not respond with anger. Those, there's divisiveness, I move as a man of peace. We're not going to respond with the weapons of the devil. For the weapons of our warfare, this is 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 to 6 to 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Casting down arguments and everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to obedience of Christ, being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So our weapons are different than the enemies. God will instruct you what those weapons are. Sin that you failed to remove will later torment you. I, I forgot to read the close of chapter 11. But the, the gist of it is this. Um, oops, I'm in Corinthians. That doesn't get me there. Um, there's the Amorites in the south that have not been fully dealt with. There's a coalition that arises. It talks in, it, that, the, uh, that the Amorite kings um, were executed, but they rose up again and they and it lists some others that were defeated 
But what was not defeated is listed. Those in Gaza, those further south, and certain kings have not been defeated. What happens is when we incompletely allow, don't allow God to incompletely deal with our sin issues, they rise up to bite us later. By the way, this is playing out in the natural right now. It astounds me how this works. And then lastly, to boost your faith, remember God's prior victories for you. That's chapter 12. So here's how I want to conclude this. Thank you for extra time and patience. I wanted to take time with the fast today. Um, I want to conclude this with um, a ministry time, again, where we're going to shoot the arrows of the Lord's victory at areas of strongholds that are against you. God himself is your champion and he will take them out. Why don't we stand? Let me just close this in prayer. Sorry about the clicking. We, we've noticed it's here. We don't know. We haven't bought a new countryman. We're not sure what's up. You want to add one thing? Say again. He wants to abolish them. He hardens the hearts of the enemies so that we see them as enemies. So we want to abolish them and not befriend them. Oh, interesting. Um, she points out an interesting point. Um, yeah, that's excellent. She gave me a New Testament perspective on something I just said, which was, thank you, Whitney. Um, I said that the text said clearly that God hardened their hearts to come against Israel so that God could judge them. However, in the New Testament, those that have hardened hearts is so we can love on them and release the kingdom and release life. Because we're not killing people in the New Testament. What we're doing is we're releasing the kingdom and Jesus modeled what that kingdom looks like. The kingdom looks like righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It looks like the love of the Father. And it looks like radically stepping into dark places and releasing the life and the mercy and the grace of God and the love of God. And that's how the kingdom advances in a new covenant era. So I really appreciate that, uh, that that was there. I was looking at the clock thinking, wow, we're short of time, but we really need to close with that. Because the way we fight our battles is new. You win people over by doing good, not evil. And the purpose of hardening of hearts is so we can release the kingdom to those who need it. Some of the most receptive people are the ones that are most opposed. And God is actually going after that very specifically. Does this make sense? Thank you, Lord, for a clarification. Can you move your cup for a second, John? Thank you so much. Um, so let me close this in prayer. And um, I just do a general prayer, and then we'll open the front for ministry again. Um, are you all good? Are you all breathing? Uh, <laughs> yeah. We don't normally talk about it as a church these days in warfare language. However, this is the season the church is in right now. You're seeing it in the natural played out in political arenas right now. In the church, the kingdom is advancing through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's training. There was a word that came through from one of our, our people that we didn't dismiss. He saw kittens becoming lions. So 
He's restoring the roar in your life and mine. And where we have been kittens in the old season, we're becoming lions in the new season. So, so Father, I thank you that um, you are moving on your church, that you are equipping us. I thank you for this conquest story of Joshua 1 to 12 and that Jesus Christ has won the victory. I thank you, Lord, that your kingdom is advancing through the power of love power of righteousness, a laid down life, people who release the love of the kingdom, the mercy and the grace of God. I thank you, Father, for what you're releasing. And I pray, Lord, that you would equip your church in this season for the days ahead. Lord, we, in the times of shaking, when the enemy may assault, we are trusting you to move with mighty power and supernatural grace to defeat all that stands against us. We invite your kingdom to come. We say, come Holy Spirit. Let your kingdom advance in our marriages, our families, our lives, our callings, and our purposes. And we give you all honor and praise, and we bless the strong name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Let's give the Lord a hand, and we'll open in ministry. We hope you enjoyed the Bridgeway Church Sunday Service Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, please feel free to click subscribe and share it with a friend. We invite you to support our ministry by giving at bridgeway.us forward slash give. Join our Sunday morning services in person weekly at 9.30 a.m. at 5201 East Warren Avenue in Denver. For more resources, classes, community events, or to follow us on social media, go to bridgeway.us or search for Bridgeway Church Denver online.